As a forensic psychiatrist, uh, one of my areas of specialty is the intersection or overlap of mental health and the criminal justice system. And one very important area where I've been involved in a lot of assessments as well as treatment of individuals is in the area of stalking. So today I'd like to provide an overview on the topic of stalking and I'm going to follow that up with a series where I will cover various aspects related to the topic of stalking, including risk factors, different types of management strategies and recommendations, and I'm also going to be incorporating uh, real-life cases to hopefully help illustrate some of the concepts that I'll be discussing. In terms of the incidence of stalking, what the research shows us overwhelmingly is that males are far more likely to stalk than females. And in fact, females are stalked four times more often than males. And during the course of their lifetime, one in 12 females reports being stalked. So what is stalking? Now that's one of the challenging concepts because stalking exists along a continuum where at one end, for example, you may have unwanted behaviors like receiving telephone calls or receiving unwanted letters to other stalking that may include, for example, following someone to actually uh, receiving threats of either a violent or nonviolent nature to at a very extreme end, actually having someone engage in a physical or sexual assault or even cause damage or destruction to your personal property. What relationship do stalkers have to their victim? And an important take home point is that in over 85% of cases, a stalker knows his or her victim. And that most typically could be an ex-partner, an acquaintance, or a work-related or professional colleague. Now you may be wondering, are all stalkers pretty much the same or are there actually discrete types? And fortunately for us, there's a world-renowned professor named Paul Mullen, who's devoted his entire career to better understanding stalking and classifying the various types. And Professor Mullen has identified five distinct types of stalkers. I will be diving into a specific case example on the most common type of stalker, the rejected stalker which comprises approximately one-third of all stalkers. Nicola Roberts is a British pop star, songwriter, and advocate. She rose to fame after auditioning and winning a spot on the British reality show Pop Stars The Rivals, after which she formed the musical group sensation Girls Aloud, which launched five albums, earned four UK number one singles, and worldwide success. At the height of her career, Nicola began dating a man named Carl Davies, an Afghanistan veteran. They were together for 18 months. In 2008, the relationship became increasingly unhealthy, so Nicola ended it. She was 22 at the time. While the Girls Aloud group took a three-year hiatus in 2009, and Nicola went on to pursue a successful solo career, in 2012, the group reunited and released another album and aired a television documentary entitled 10 Years of Girls Aloud. It was around this same time in 2012, four years after her breakup with Carl Davies, that Nicola's nightmare began. Carl Davies began sending Nicola Twitter and Instagram messages in 2012. 
Many of the messages were affectionate in nature, and he even sent a bouquet of flowers to Nicola's manager, declaring his love for Nicola. However, the vast majority of messages were disturbing and even threatening. I'm sure it goes without saying that being a victim of stalking is incredibly stressful, emotional, and traumatic. And when you talk to victims of stalking, they will tell you that they experience a whole host of emotions from shock and disbelief to sometimes being in a relationship where some of the stalking behaviors have become normalized over time in the context of the relationship to a fear if a victim reports stalking that there may be retaliation or the system, including the criminal justice system, won't take the matter seriously or protect the victim adequately, or that reporting it may escalate the situation, or in the case of public figures or celebrities in particular, that reporting the stalking will invite unnecessary and negative media attention. Nicola never replied to any of the thousands of messages from Carl, but she meticulously copied them for her records. After five years of no response, Carl began stalking a friend of Nicola's, and it was Nicola's concern for her friend being stalked that prompted her to contact the police. Carl was arrested and pled guilty to one count of stalking and another count of persistent use of a public communication to cause annoyance or inconvenience. The court sentence included a lifetime restraining order to not contact or go within 250 meters of Nicola or her family or her friend. He also received 15 months in prison, 150 hours of unpaid work, a 60-day rehabilitation activity, and a ban from following Nicola on social media. Unfortunately for Nicola, Carl violated his restraining order by following her on Instagram, which brings me to the topic of restraining orders. Restraining orders are potentially effective, but they're one of many stalking risk management strategies. It's important not to have a false sense of security in a restraining order, particularly if someone's violated a previous restraining order. They tend to work best in non-violent cases and they're best implemented sooner rather than later. Nicola describes significant anxiety from being stalked and some people even develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Among the other typical psychological effects of stalking include depression, powerlessness and suicidality, insomnia, and substance abuse. Nicola describes living with a constant feeling of walking on eggshells and a fear that she remains at risk. As she says, you are too scared to take the dogs out for a walk because when someone plants vicious seeds, you just imagine every possible outcome. Nicola has since become an advocate for victims like herself by speaking out and working with women's aid in order to ensure others don't end up in a similar situation. I will be diving into a specific case example on the intimacy-seeking stalker, which comprises another third of all stalkers, and I'll be covering their primary motivations as well as important risk assessment and management strategies. Margaret Peggy Ray first made the news when she was arrested at the Lincoln Tunnel for failing to pay a toll. Normally, this wouldn't be newsworthy, but Peggy had stolen the car from celebrity David Letterman, a late-night talk show host. Upon her arrest, 
Peggy informed the police that she was David's wife and her three-year-old son in the car was their child. Over the next several years, Peggy was arrested eight times for trespassing onto David's property, breaking into his home, and watching him while he slept. Peggy Ray was born in Illinois. In her early 20s, while married to her first husband, she began exhibiting signs and symptoms of schizophrenia. They divorced while her mental health continued to decline. Ultimately, her husband was awarded custody of their four children. However, Peggy remarried and had another child. In the years following, she frequently disappeared for months at a time. Her family and friends attempted to get her professional help, but she became a transient. Her two brothers were diagnosed with schizophrenia and tragically both completed suicide. She later learned from her mother that her father had also been treated for schizophrenia. So what is schizophrenia? Schizophrenia is a psychotic disorder. And in psychotic disorders, a person has a loss of touch with reality. The classic signs and symptoms of schizophrenia include hallucinations, delusions, a person can have disorganized thinking or behavior, and many people with schizophrenia have a lack of insight into the fact that they actually have a mental illness. Now, in Peggy's case, as is classic with many intimacy-seeking stalkers, delusions are predominant, and a particular type of delusion that is common are erotomanic delusions, which are the fixed false belief that someone's in love with you when they're not. And psychotic disorders like schizophrenia run in families. For example, among identical twins, if one twin has schizophrenia, there's over a 50% chance that the other identical twin will also develop the disorder. Peggy Ray's stalking of David Letterman led to a total of eight arrests, and she served 34 months between jails and psychiatric hospitals. She was prescribed antipsychotic medications for her schizophrenia, which did improve her erotomanic delusions. For example, David Letterman himself commented that when Peggy would call him, he could tell right away it was like night and day whether she was on or off her medications. She stopped her medications because of very typical side effects, which included feeling tired and gaining weight. And also, why would she take her medications? Because in her mind, she didn't even have a mental illness. While off her medications, Peggy shifted her attention to Story Musgrave, an astronaut. She phoned him, wrote him letters, sent him packages, and at one point, even pretended to be a reporter sent to interview him. In 1997, Peggy showed up at Story's home in Florida, claiming they were writing a book together. At one point, she even said, I love Dr. Musgrave. I would die for him. He is a man of integrity and intelligence. Once again, Peggy was arrested for trespassing and jailed. Now I'd like to discuss some specific details about intimacy-seeking stalkers like Peggy. One important distinguisher among this group is that the stalkers are predominantly female and the primary motivation is to seek intimacy with someone the stalker loves based on the delusional belief that that love is reciprocated. While threats are common in this group, fortunately, the actual risk of a physical assault is the lowest of all the stalker types. However, the risk can be heightened if someone stands in the way of the stalker's love. Another important distinction in this stalker type 
compared to the rejected stalker I covered in my last video is that this group tends to not be deterred by a threat of prosecution until they are actually treated. In 1998, a couple months after being released from a psychiatric hospital in Miami, Peggy Ray completed suicide by kneeling on a railroad track in front of an oncoming train in Denver, Colorado. In a letter that she wrote to her mother shortly before her death, Peggy said, I'm all traveled out. I chose a painless and instantaneous way to end my life in the valley I loved. The incompetent stalker, which accounts for approximately 15% of all stalkers, and we'll be further exploring this group's primary motivation, risks, and behaviors. Claire Waxman first caught the eye of radio and television producer Elliot Fogel in 1991, while the two were attending St. Albans College. Claire was aware of Elliot following her around campus, hiding behind bushes, always watching and waiting for her. But as a young girl in her late teens, Claire simply chalked this up to Elliot having a crush on her. And at the time, she didn't know what stalking was. And so she did what many of us would do in these circumstances. She simply tried to ignore Elliot and hope that he'd go away. And two years later, when they left college, Claire heard nothing further from Elliot. But in 2003, 10 years later, Elliot resurfaced and he began to show up at Claire's workplace. He pushed her work colleagues for her personal information. And at the same time, Claire received anonymous cards, emails, and flowers. Uncertain of the identity of these gestures, Claire reviewed work video footage, and she wasn't surprised to confirm Elliot's identity, as she still recalled how strangely he behaved while they were in college. He repeatedly visited her work and spent countless hours following her. He would run by her parents' home on a quiet cul-de-sac around holiday periods as he knew she would be there. He made hundreds of late-night phone calls to Claire. He broke into her car. He pretended to be a prospective parent at her child's nursery. And he researched Claire Waxman 40,000 times on Google over a one-year period. The common characteristics of incompetent stalkers include that on average, they tend to be loners, more socially awkward, and have less emotional intelligence. And compared to the intimacy-seeking stalker group that we talked about in our last episode, that group, by nature of the mental health symptoms they were experiencing, they were deprived of the ability to understand that the love they felt wasn't reciprocated. In the case of incompetent stalkers, they recognize that the love is not reciprocated, but they persist nevertheless. And oftentimes they persist for many years at a time, like in Claire's case. And even when they give up one particular victim, it's common that they'll move on to another victim. And that's why incompetent stalkers are notorious for sequentially stalking. Now, one of the primary motivations of the incompetent stalker is entitlement. And by that, I mean that the incompetent stalker feels entitled to a relationship, even when the love isn't reciprocated. And it's very important to recognize entitlement 
and the level of entitlement because a high level of entitlement is one of the important risk factors for violence among stalkers. One of the important risk management strategies in stalking is that a team approach is almost always necessary. And a stalking management team can have many players, including the stalking victim, the stalker's family, mental health professionals, local police officers, and local prosecutors. Claire married in 2004, and when she returned from her honeymoon, she found a package on her doorstep. She recognized Elliot's handwriting immediately, and when she opened the package, there was an answering machine. She wasn't sure what was behind the answering machine, but she'd had enough, so she contacted the police. The police issued a harassment order, but the endless phone calls and letters continued. Over 12 years, Claire fought through the courts to see her tormentor brought to justice. Elliot was prosecuted a total of five times, received three jail sentences, a lifetime restraining order, and a community order. After breaching the restraining order, Elliot was incarcerated for another three and a half years. He was described by the court as a compulsive, obsessive stalker. Claire suffered years of torment. The devastating toll of Elliot's 12-year obsession left her vulnerable, exhausted, and caused her considerable anxiety and emotional distress. And that emotional distress over time deeply impacted her physical health, causing her insomnia, weight loss, and to suffer a miscarriage. And yet through it all, Claire fought with determination in the courts and she campaigned for increased awareness and tougher stalker laws to protect others in similar situations. In 2011, Kathy Rowe placed a bid on a home in the prestigious Carmel Valley neighborhood of San Diego. It was a home she always wanted to own. Kathy later found out that she'd been outbid by Janice Rudder and Jerry Rice, a married couple with a young child and a new baby on the way. The couple called the house their dream home and they had used their life savings to purchase it. On the other hand, Kathy was devastated and in her words, she was heartbroken. Soon after Janice and Jerry moved into their dream home, strange things began happening. They learned that their house was listed for sale and interested buyers started showing up in their yard. They received $1,000 of bills for adult diapers and magazine subscriptions they never ordered. And there was an online ad for a New Year's party at their home that they never planned. If that weren't enough, things worsened. In February, Jerry's neighbor's wives received Valentine's Day cards signed with Jerry's name. And Jerry discovered online posts soliciting sex with his wife informing strangers to show up at their home during the day. After a year of harassment, Kathy Rowe was arrested and pled guilty to stalking the couple. She was sentenced to one year of electronic home surveillance, five years of probation, and she was ordered to stay away from the couple for 10 years. For all stalker types, it's important to discern the primary motivation for each. And in the case of the resentful stalker, the primary motivation is perceived persecution. 
Other important characteristics of resentful stalkers is that they seek to frighten their victim, and they may choose their victim randomly or specifically. And while the rate of threats is the highest in the resentful stalker group among all five stalker types, fortunately, the actual risk of assaults is one of the lowest. One of the biggest challenges with resentful stalkers is that they're the most difficult to treat. And that's because they have poor insight and they have a false and distorted perception of being persecuted. And based on that perception, they believe that their behaviors are justified, including retaliation. And that poor insight is a particular poor prognosticator for treatment. Colonel Russell Williams was a decorated military pilot and a shining bright star of the Canadian military. Among his many passengers included Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. He became commander of Canada's largest military airbase. He was married to the same woman for 20 years. He also pled guilty to a string of fetish break-ins, two sexual assaults, and two murders. In 2007, Colonel Russell Williams began breaking into homes near his cottage in Tweed, Ontario, and in 2008 near his home in Ottawa. He patiently stalked his victims, all female. He methodically planned the break-ins, scoped out their homes, often entering them multiple times. By the fall of 2009, Russell advanced to stalking, raping, and erotically asphyxiating Marie-France Comeau, a 38-year-old co-worker. At this point, the break-in stopped. But by February 2010, Russell's sexual and sadistic urges resurfaced. He stalked, kidnapped, raped, and murdered 27-year-old Jessica Lloyd. It was here he left a tire track, which was later matched to his sports utility vehicle. When called in for questioning, Russell Williams was initially uncooperative, but eventually confessed to the stalking, break-ins, sexual assaults, and murders. Predatory stalkers comprise 4% of all stalkers, yet they are the most dangerous stalker type. Like Russell Williams, one of the aspects that makes predatory stalkers so dangerous is the degree of planning, preparation, and rehearsal that precedes their attacks. And many predatory stalkers have paraphilias, which are defined as recurrent sexually arousing fantasies, often that involve themes of humiliation, suffering, and torture. And many predatory stalkers have convictions, often including sexual convictions. Predatory stalkers are notorious for their criminal versatility, which is defined by the wide range of crimes that they exhibit, often beginning with more nonviolent crimes and then escalating over time into more severe, violent, and sexual crimes. In summary, a primary take-home teaching point for this series is the ability to discern the five primary motivations for the five different stalker types. For the rejected stalker, the primary motivation is reconciliation and revenge. For the intimacy-seeking stalker, the primary motivation is desiring an intimate relationship. For the incompetent stalker, 
the primary motivation is a sense of entitlement to a relationship. For the resentful stalker, the primary motivation is perceived persecution. And for the predatory stalker, the primary motivation is the attainment and exploitation of the victim. I hope you found this series educational and it has helped you to understand the five different types of stalkers, identify their primary motivations, and appreciate the differential characteristics, risks, and differential management strategies for each type. For more information, please visit my website at reachdrbeach.com.